Welcome to In Times of Love and Hate, a new podcast series from Birkbeck Voices. In our first episode, Professor Marina Warner talks about the importance of language, language woven into stories, which can shape our shared understanding and deepen our abilities to negotiate with one another as we navigate through times of love and hate. The episodes in this series are brought to you by academics from Birkbeck's MSE War and Humanitarianism, MA Public Histories, BA Human Geography, BA Archaeology and Geography, and BA Intercultural Communication and Language. They will explore with you how the turbulent times we live in can be better understood, lived and survived using the tools of investigation and critical inquiry that students and academics alike employ through study and research at Birkbeck. In times of love and hate, uh, language matters. And um, what we do with language matters. Not only in direct forms of speech and address, as I might be addressing you now, or in social media, or in the press, or in the news, or in stump speeches, but also as narrative, as literature of storytelling, the, the kinds of ways that we tell, our, recount our experiences, or shape them in literature, actually can institute experience as well as reflect it. This is possibly not such a, a kind of common way of looking at literature as constitutive of experience, rather than simply as it were, tracking it and imitating it. Um, and secondly, can, it can also it can shape it. Um, it can shape our understanding in such ways that we become more able to cope with the experience when it hits us. So it is an absolute resource, though very hard to capture exactly how that resource works. But it's a way of, of deepening and stretching our abilities to negotiate with each other and to survive. Um, through doing this, stories, language shaped into stories, creates communities. And there is um, a, a, a very nice phrase, I think, um, coined by a comparatist in New York, uh, which is communities of fate. So this is not, this is communities created by a story, by, by the direction of a story, by the destiny of a story. So this doesn't necessarily mean the community is created by many of the things that do create communities, such as class, occupation, languages, and so forth. This is another, another way of doing it, and this is the shared narrative. It exists in our, centrally in our lives. It means actually going back to some of the earlier ways of deploying language, which we've slightly sort of lost, we've lost our relationship with, but I think are still very powerful and operate very powerfully. And these are the languages of cursing and blessing, on the one hand. Oddly enough, cursing we've understood because we have a hate speech law, which I totally approve of, and because we understand the power of language to inflict hurt. Um, but we don't actually have a similar understanding of the power of fair speech, of how language can actually, as it were, do good. And following on from that, there is a very deep, long history in which the stories and languages mobilized to forestall what might happen. So the idea is that there is a prophetic thrust. The community of fate is created by anticipating what might happen and seeking to avert it by language, by what you, how you understand it, and how in that understanding you can actually build up some kind of defense. So, um, and, I, and I'll finally end with an overview of a project which I've been involved in in Sicily with my colleague here, Valentina Castagna, who's at the University of Palermo, um, working with, with refugees. Now I'm going to give you one example of a, a community of how storytelling actually can act um, actively in the world. Paul Celan, who was a bilingual French and German writer, um, said about himself, he was a writer of exile, a writer who suffered under the Nazis and so forth, he always, finds himself, he always found himself face to face with the incomprehensible, with the inaccessible, the language of the stone, he said. And his only recourse was talking. 
and he thought that his talking couldn't really be proper literature because literature belongs, he wrote, to those who are at home in the world. Well, the anguished irony of this strikes home, but on reflection, I would counter it by saying the opposite, that literature belongs precisely to those who are not at home in the world because it is one of the ways that they, we, can find a home. Now, an example of this interaction is when unfamiliar story can change the fate of the dislocated and the unhomed occurs in the memoirs of an eminent literary critic, Marcel Rice Renitsky, who died in about three years ago, four years ago, at the age of 93. In 1999, his book, My Lives, relates his remarkable odyssey as a Jewish refugee um, from the Nazis and his survival against all the odds. He was born in Warsaw in the ghetto, and uh, he married very young, and he and his wife survived that pogrom and took flight, and they found shelter with a poor Polish couple, a Protestant typesetter called Bolek, and his wife, Genia, who lived in an isolated suburb of the city and hid them, but not actually out of altruism, but because they used them for work. Bolek asked um, Marcel and his wife, Genia, to roll cigarettes for them. So they, they were allowed on sufferance as they rolled cigarettes. And this was a contraband, so the, the cigarettes were sold. Uh, the so the, that was the deal. And they lived in terror that they would be betrayed, that there would be, you know, that at some point this Polish couple who did not show sympathy with their views or but was doing it out of desire for profit would actually uh, denounce them. Um, they were always hungry. But one day the wife of the Polish couple said she was bored and couldn't they think of something to do? And Marcel, aged 21, remembered a story that he'd heard from a book. So I think it was Tess of the D'Urbervilles, a Thomas Hardy book. Or, anyway, so he, and he hit upon this extraordinary solution. He became the sort of Scheherazade of his own, of his own survival. Um, and he began telling stories um, all, through, all through these days and nights with the tremendous shortages in the war, of course. They, and I, they, he writes, these had but one aim, to entertain my hosts. The better they liked a story, the better we were rewarded, with a slice of bread, with a few carrots. I did not invent any stories, not a single one. This is tremendously interesting. Instead, I told them whatever I could remember, dramatically heightened or shortened versions of novels and I had read, or plays, operas, even films I'd seen. His repertory passed from Goethe to Aida, and it's interesting that Scheherazade in the Arabian Nights, Thousand and One Nights, does, she doesn't invent stories either. It says very clearly at the beginning that uh, at the beginning of the book, I mean, of course, she's a fictional character, but nevertheless, they're representing some reality um, of some kind about storytelling. And Scheherazade doesn't invent stories. Scheherazade remembers stories that she's read or remembers stories that she's been told. So she's passing on tradition. She's actually not, need, not needing, there's no incumbent, not incumbent on her to be original. It's incumbent on her to share things that she herself has shared before. Um, so, so in exactly the same way as um, Scheherazade puts off the, the day of her death and the day of the other women's deaths, um, by telling stories to the wicked Sultan Shariar, eventually he changes his mind. So, writes Ranitsky, where they were protected. And the character of the Polish couple, he writes in his autobiography, actually changed. They began to be, at some point, one of them expostulated at some unjust tyrant in a story, saying he shouldn't behave like that. He should be his friend. He shouldn't, he shouldn't betray them. And suddenly saw himself that he was the figure in the story and that he should also act in a different way from what had previously been threatened. So later, the R Russian army arrived, and a soldier appeared at the door and freed them. And later, Reichsrenitsky um, never forgot the Warsaw typesetter who risked his life to save mine, and they became friends after the war was over. The literature of captivity um, contains many stories of this kind, some of them fictional, you might have seen the film The Kiss of the Spider Woman, which is a similar, similar pattern of storytelling in a, in a prison. Um, and there's a very famous and wonderful scene in Primo Levi's Auschwitz memoir in which he begins to tell one of his friend's stories. So this is a way, this, these are particular deprived conditions in which people actually survive through communicating imaginatively rather than 
realistically. The, the emphasis that I'm trying to make is that it's a great resource to live in, an, in a parallel world, a world that isn't actually direct experience, and that that parallel world invented by stories, some of them absolutely unauthored, anonymous, can bear on the life we are actually living ourselves. So it doesn't need to be, doesn't need to match for it to illuminate. Marcel Reichschwanitzky was talking to his hosts in Polish, but he became a great man of letters in German, and he also spoke and wrote Hebrew and Yiddish. And his situation, adopting a tongue on his migration westwards, um, is now very common in the world. There are Iranians who speak Norwegian, Armenians, um, like the artist Nina Kachadurian, who's done a marvelous piece of work on this, Armenians who speak Swedish um, or Finnish. Um, she'd made a video of her parents learning, trying to pronounce Swedish and F Finnish correctly. And, it's so, um, and this is one of the things that is really very, very, very common now in the world, that people are living and inhabiting a second language or even a third language sometimes. So they themselves are migrating culturally through the language as they migrate geographically. And the chorus of Medea, in, the, in Medea, the great play by Euripides, um, which has been translated recently by Robin Robertson very, very well, the chorus of women cry out about Medea when she's in great distress. If only we could charm her with music. But those old composers were such fools. They wrote melodies only for the happy times. Festivals, grand banquets, celebrations. None of them thought to make a music for real life. Music that would salve our wounds and soothe our bitter griefs. We need a tune when there's no food to eat. And that seems to me to be a, a, a truly, I mean, I think that Robin Robertson has translated it incredibly beautifully, but we need a tune when there's no food to eat is actually a, a very powerful principle and one that is, you know, obviously rather, I mean, rather neglected even in our own rather comfortable circumstances here at the moment, however fraught the political scene is, and we are more comfortable than many people in the world. So this, this concept has very much dominated my thinking and my research for quite a while now. And it began when I looked at the, as we all know, this refugee crisis, and I looked at these uh, photographs of refugee camps, and they seemed to me that, and, and the, this des these desolating um, new accounts of the refugees arriving, um, and some of them not arriving, this is um, Isaac Julian's, he made a beautiful film quite a long time ago, he was rather prescient, called Western Union Small Boats. And this is not a real dead body, this is an actor playing one. Um, but um, Isaac Julian, who's a great filmmaker and artist, um, anticipated the ever-growing crisis um, on our Mediterranean shores. Uh, this is one photograph of the many abandoned boats on Lampedusa after having made the very dangerous crossing. So, um, and then elsewhere, um, further afield, uh, these vast cities, uh, some of them 300,000 people, have, have developed. And if you notice, these regimented lines, the detention camps, refugee camps, welcome centers, whatever they're called, are just have, have grown up on a grid plan, which is usually laid down by the <laughs> United Nations Refugee Authority. Um, and, and they really don't have much sense of um, what makes a society viable, especially not in cultural terms. And I was trying to put culture very much at the top of, along, alongside as of equal importance to shelter and warmth and safety and food. Um, it seems to me that the life of the mind is a necessity for the health of an individual and for that, that individual's community. Um, so then the Save the Children have a program and they have some drawings of children's experiences and you see children always draw this kind of thing um, because that's what they know. Um, and then, but this drawing gave me an indication of something that <coughs> reminded me of how stories travel. And this is a drawing by a little boy um, of the water supply. So that, that central system is where the water is being collected for distribution in the camp. 
And as you see there, there is an actual gathering of people. And that, to me, seems to be the, uh, a parallel, an analogy, an analogy with the well. Or where, I mean, there were places where people told stories and exchanged gossip or exchanged experience, which used to be indicted by, for example, preachers in church, where women would gather laundries, washing places, the bathing houses, and the well. And these were the crossing points. If you want to track how a story traveled, how Cinderella traveled from China, perhaps, was the earliest version of Cinderella we have, to France in the 17th century, you need to look at the crossing points, the migration points, how things are traveling along the lines of trade and education, pilgrimage, well, curiosity, exploration, but all of, always traveling, traveling with people. So um, there is culture in the refugee camps because it, it is an irrepressible urge for um, human beings together to create it. This was a very extraordinary example in the jungle in Calais of, a, a little, of an Ethiopian church that was put up spontaneously. And you see here the, um, the, the, the way that it's immediately created a place to gather and it's also decorated in a really rather wonderful way. It's, I, I found this when I saw it online incredibly touching and moving. But um, it creates, of course, divisions, religious divisions. The camps tend to be divided by religious affiliation, which is not a good thing, in my view. So, but that's in order to keep them less you know, turbulent. Um, there, there was also secular culture. You probably saw it on the telly. Um, the jungle had the Good Chance Theater, which was very successful. It was a Buckminster Fuller dome, and they put on quite a lot of performances of poetry and plays and so forth. But it seems to me that the, the ideal, uh, the, uh, the cultural ideal is, that, is to create a country of words, which was the phrase that was used by Mahmoud Darwish in his poem, which has become a kind of anthem for the Palestinians. Ours is a country of words, speak, speak. And how do you, how do you build that country of words? How do you create it? Uh, the um, thinker, Stuart Hall, who died last year, has just brought out his, his uh, autobiography, Familiar Stranger, and it's full of the most wonderful, fine-grained, sensitive discussions of aspects of coming to belong to this country when you have come as an immigrant. He got a scholarship um, to Oxford as a Commonwealth scholar, so he didn't come on a boat across the Mediterranean. But he nevertheless, when he encountered British society, um, having left Jamaica, which of course saw itself as British, um, so, but he found his, his two worlds in collision. He um, reflects on it with tremendous uh, depth and sensitivity and of great interest. And I bring him up because Stuart Hall was the, pretty much the social scientist, social sociologist, who was the architect of multiculturalism in the years of, you know, when it was actually a, a policy adopted by the Labour Party. And those theories have come under tremendous fire and scorn from our recent gov uh, governments. And I think that that is just so mistaken. I mean, I think that, the, that, um, that Stuart's vision of, it's, I mean, it's not, it's not my theme today, and it's, and it's a complex question, but I think nevertheless his vision of how you preserve the culture that you carry with you as you travel, how that, mi how that migration then enriches, cross-pollinates, cross-fertilizes, and becomes a country of words in the other place, not, without actual sectarian division, without one church against another church, but, uh, but more of a kind of jazz, picking up the imp improvising. And I think the narrative, though Stuart himself was not, he was much more interested in the visual arts, um, and he uh, championed, he created Innova, the black, um, and the black, the, the autograph, the black photography archive, and Innova, the uh, in museum in the, the gallery of contemporary art um, in, in the um, East End. And, and he saw the visual artists as having a capacity to generate ideas of, along these lines faster than, and faster and more eloquently than literature. But he also possibly wasn't as interested in literature. But I think that now you can move his thinking you can move his thinking, his, his deep, he, very, he was a very amusing, very witty man too, uh, you can move his thinking across to narrative. Now one of the things that matters very much in the composition of stories 
with regard to these issues of migration and settlement is, is the idea of place. So it is a geographical question. And how the story is told geographically matters very much indeed. How the, what perspective is brought, where the borders are, are drawn in the mind when you tell a story. And uh, Rebecca Solnit, whom some of you might know, is a superb, is a splendid Californian writer. She, um, she wrote a history of walking, and she's done, uh, she'd also done some, she's uh, qu quite a fine art critic. She lives in San Francisco, and she, her first atlas, she's been doing these storytelling atlases. And the first one was of San Francisco, which is her native city. And her, she went out and she asked people she knew and other people to give her the map of what San, how San Francisco seemed to them. What was their story of San Francisco? So, and also in, in the past. And she created this atlas um, of her city, which, actually, which on some pages is the atlas of the gay bars, on another one it's the trade union movement, on another one it's the female ecologists who work to preserve the parks, another it's the lepidopterists, the people who collected butterflies, and each one of them creates a different map of the city. So it's tracking the story of the city through different experiences, people's experiences. And the, her most recent is New York, and she has a very striking two pages in which she, she remaps the islands of New York um, and connects them to the islands of the Caribbean because there's a huge Caribbean population in New York. And so by remapping it, um, she shows us these connections which, are not, which one would never dream of because they so, seem to be so culturally separate, so politically separate. But by shifting the map, she creates these alliances. And... Um, and it's, it's quite, I mean, I, I like it very much as a, as a strategy, and her book is very, very powerful book. Um, so I'm now going to move on to my second point that I made about the, the constitutive effect of telling stories, the fact that it can lead and shape um, experience and language. So, um, and I want to do it in the perspective, under the, from the perspective of um, prophecy. So this may seem to you um, a leap, and it is a kind of leap, but, um, but basically it's to think of stories as looking, not looking back, but, or if they are looking back, to be looking forward. What do you want from the future? When you're creating your community of fate, what do you want your fate to be? Or what fate do you fear might be yours? telling stories with that perspective. And it actually happens much more than people think. Nabokov had a very interesting um, pair of words. He said it was backcasting in order to forecast. So you told a story from the past in order to forecast what might happen in the future. Well, it has an extremely long lineage. Um, so here's, I mean, it's a, it has a deep and long lineage in, in, his, in, in writing. Frank Commode commenting on this uh, tradition um, in his great book, The Sense of an Ending, makes the shift, which is an important shift to make, from religious writing, which is where you mostly find this idea of prophecy, of course, um, but to, to secular writing in the 20th century um, and continuing into ours. So that, um, and the idea that this is consciousness, this is, he says, conscience, but also consciousness that stands in place of the religious vision and becomes a way of thinking about people. The, um, so, um, all right. Um, when the prophet Jeremiah cries woe, um, he's channeling the fury of God, and he intends to put a stop to the behavior um, he's denouncing. Therefore will I discover thy skirts upon thy face, that thy shame might appear. I have seen thine adulteries and thy neighings, the lewdness of thy whoredom, and thine abominations on the hills. I, you, you know this. I mean, I, perhaps you'll be free of it. You haven't heard it. But, <laughs> but uh, um, it's the Old Testament smiting and, and denouncing. Um, and uh, woe unto thee, Jerusalem. Okay, so this gave, gave the uh, word, the Jeremiah, for denouncing and cursing. And such rhetorical forms shape stories that look ahead to apocalyptic horizons, where catastrophe 
inferno, pandemonium, will take place. But also, as in the book of Revelation that closes the Bible, um, they imagine the parousia, which is the glory, the glory lying ahead for some in heaven. Now, such stories often adopt and revision narrative modes of great antiquity, such as parable and allegory. And these are all being re-inhabited now. I was a, a judge of the Man Booker International Prize in 2015, and I read a huge amount of international literature, and it was very, very striking how many writers in countries that are suffering from war and so forth will, will write parables, animal parables, or stories of the past written as allegories to talk, to denounce the current dictators or the current state of civil war, and so forth. And um, the, the mode of writing is not when shall it be, but rather the position that claims, and so it was in the past. So times and love and hate have stirred up these rhetorical forms. And I think that we need to oppose to the Jeremiah or to the apocalyptic denunciation or to the language of cursing. I'm not saying we have to be sweet. That would be completely wrong. But we need to try and forge what the Refugee Tales project um, down at the University of Kent in Canterbury, they've called it a language of welcome. They've instituted this Refugee Tales project of greeting refugees who are you know, arriving on the south coast of England. And, um, and they wanted, uh, the writer Alice Smith declared that she wanted to create a language of welcome. And that, in a sense, is the same as what, I, um, what I'm trying to um, communicate to you now. Uh, the other way that prophecy works is that it tells one story in order to tell another. This is a very um, characteristic, very conventional Christian way of thinking. It's called typology or prefigurement. And basically, in Rembrandt's painting of Abraham killing Isaac, of course, he doesn't kill him in the end, but he's about to kill him um, when the angel interferes and prevents it. Um, that is, if, if any of you have been brought up Catholic as I was, that, is, that prefigures the death of Christ on the cross. So the father wishes kills the son in order to, for a sacrifice to offer up for the better, better outcome, and that is seen as prefiguring Christ's sacrifice by God. Now, this is another way of reading and making literature. You tell one story in order to tell another. This is very important to the readings of myths these days. I'll give you just two examples of writers, excellent writers, who work in this vein. Svetlana Alexeyevich won the Nobel Prize last year. She's, her most beautiful book, I think, is her book called Chernobyl Prayer, which is about the disaster disastrous nuclear explosions in Chernobyl. She comes from that part of the world. Her sister died in it, eventually of radiation poisoning. Uh, many of her friends and family died. She went and interviewed all the survivors that she could and created a, a book that is a Greek chorus. You hear their voices. She stitches them all together. There's no intervening prose at all. It's just their voices. And they rise like a great chorus um, from the pages, a chorus of entreaty, entreaty that this should not happen again. She doesn't say that, but the, the cumulative effect on us as readers is that she is telling us this catastrophe in order to help avert it in the future. She, um, the, the French translation, I read it in English, um, but the French translation is much better than the English one because of the title, because it's la supplication the supplication, which rather than Chernobyl prayer, and the supplication catches extremely brilliantly this, this, this force of the language, the force of the torrent of words coming at you, the cascade to try and stop whatever, what, that, that, that ter ter terrible thing that happened from happening again. It really should be required reading for the supporters of Trident. So, the, and then the other prophetic writer of great distinction, this is a different thing. This is, this is interesting because he began as a cat catastrophist. Um, 
he won. He eventually won the, as you see from the photograph, the, the prize that year. And he, um, Laszlo Krasz and Hawkeye, began as an apocalyptic writer during the communist period in Hungary of great, of great repression. And he wrote some very astonishing, magnificent books. But he, um, uh, then, he then, after 89, he began traveling when he, was al when he was allowed to for the first time. And he traveled to the Far East and to China and to Japan. And he fell in love with an interpretation of those cultures in the past that is his own interpretation. But he wrote in, in a book called Se Yobo There Below, a, a most astonishing, it's the most astonishing example of this kind of praise singing that is the opposite of the cursing. His book is a kind of pian, a kind of beautiful hymn to the possible forms of beauty that those cultures have produced. Uh, it, it's also many other things in the book, but, but that's one of the, he mobilizes fair speech as opposed to foul speech. So, so the, I was describing about how myths and legends and fairy tales and this traditional material um, can be read in, in, can be read like a palimpsest, so that you're looking at once at another story through the story that you're looking at. And um, I love this. Uh, you know, I get this on my on my computer all the time. <laughs> this is the appointment occurs in the past. This is when, so. This is what happens when you read. When you read a, a um, if you read, um, um, if you read Medea, uh, in, it's in the past, but in fact the appointment is about, it's still, it's still with you. We're still, we're still puzzling over the problem of Medea. Just to give you an example of how this is, this is constantly present, this looking at the, looking, looking, moving into the future to look back at our time, uh, moving through time in order to t t speak about ourselves. This is Warsan Shah, who you probably heard of. She, I, I only came across her when I found this on a postcard someone sent to me, and I liked it so much. And it seemed to me to be so much an example of how poetry, in her case, um, can work to try and warn and make things better. I'm writing to you from the future to tell you that everything will be okay. And, and the, um, what's, what's particularly nice about this is that it looks, it looks as if it's been printed on a chocolate wrapper. So there's a kind of sense in which she's ironizing the sweetness. She knows, she knows this is just a promise. Um, and then uh, this is another one, uh, similar. This is actually from uh, the 80s, from Jenny Holtz's, an artist in the 80s who uh, made a series of messages on lorries and, and billboards and things that to, to rally one's spirits. And, but Elizabeth Price, who's a young artist, won the Turner Prize a few years ago, she, um, she used this in, her, in a recent uh, series of works. In a dream, you saw a way to survive, and you were full of joy. So I suppose, you, I hope you can feel the, the, um, the understanding in these attempts to create an atmosphere of blessing. There's no sense that this is really going to work, but there's a sense of complicity that draws us in, makes us share, share the knowledge. All right. One of the things that has definitely happened um, has been a rise in the presence of ancient stories in society on the whole. It's definitely people are feeling the need, they understand this, this double-layered way of reading, so that the Iliad has become quite a significant presence on the stage, in other people's writings, and, and uh, the um, British Museum held a complete reading of the poem, which I think has never happened before in a translation. Um, it took 16 hours. I lasted 13 of them, but I, I, I got scared there wouldn't be a taxi to take me back. It was getting so late. Um, not, not from the British Museum. We were actually eventually... We were, we were taken by rickshaw uh, from the British Museum to the Almeida Theatre, which put on this uh, marathon reading of the Iliad. And the fantastic galaxy of artists, of actors, incredible actors. I've got Ben Wishaw here. Uh, stunning, stunning, a stunning array of them. And they each tried to do better than the next one. So it was, 
and, and we were put in the rickshaws, and in the rickshaws we were read the death of Patroclus, which is one of the very violent sequences, and there was all this traffic, and the rickshaws were nearly falling over, and, and it was extraordinary to have the traffic actually acting as a cacophony of battle and the confusion of battle. Very, very, very brilliant, um, uh, very brilliant piece of staging. Um, but they got many, many, they couldn't believe how many people they got watching it online as it was streamed. They got thousands. They'd expected, you know, a few, but it was very, very, very successful. It spoke, it speaks, the Iliad speaks directly to conditions of war today. Same, in a very different mode, Alice Oswald's beautiful, beautiful retelling of the Iliad memorial is a war monument for our times. It's a, basically a poem about the Iraq war, and, or Afghanistan, whichever. And um, you might have seen she recites it by heart, uh, so she's consciously going back. It's a very long poem, and she does it by heart, and she's consciously going back to the Bardic tradition. She has said that she wishes that her breath, her speaking, her not needing to read, actually creates that community in the room, as she, and she's a spellbinding performer. So that's um, um, the Oresteia is another one, the, the curse of the house of Atreus, uh, Clytemnestra killing her husband Agamemnon after he returns from the Trojan War. It's, of course, a, the story is a continuation of the Trojan War. It's about the heroes returning from the Trojan War. Um, two two productions last year, very bloody, <laughs> um, and um, and uh, there's, there's a figure in the Oresteia who is Cassandra. Cobb Tabin has just written a novel, which is called The House of Names, which is uh, a retelling of the Oresteia from the point of view of Clytemnestra and Iphigenia. So, you know, he's, that's a departure for him, he ha except he did the Virgin Mary, but apart <laughs> he did the Virgin Mary in a more realistic fashion, I think. So he's, he's entered this mytho mythological landscape because perhaps he also sees, sees it as looking forward by looking back. Um, looking at this hideous tensions and strife and murder um, caused by war and that, um, and that that will act in his reader's mind in some way. So Cassandra is the uh, cursed daughter um, who, of Priam, king of Troy. The god Apollo falls in love with her and gives her the gift of prophecy, but when she refuses him, he curses her that nobody will believe her. So she prophesies, she, she foresees everything accurately, but she is never believed. And in some ways, Cassandra, I think, is a figure of story itself. Stories themselves kind of know what's, know things. They know things, but we don't pay heed to them. We've, read, we've all read the Iliad. For thousands of years, the human beings have been reading the Iliad, but we still go to war. It's not, it just seems to be in inevitable that however much knowledge we have, it doesn't actually prevent that Cassandra is a figure of narrative. So that's it. So on, in the Oresteia at the Globe, uh, Cassandra had eyes on her, the palms of her hand, um, which is actually seems to have become fairly, fairly common in the designs of, of play. And I'll come to that in a minute. So she foresees, she foresees as she tries to avert that that gesture of averting of self-protection is, 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 is caught by the fact that she has foresight in her palms. This was the uh, Morastaya's superb production of, of the, um, the Almeida. The Almeida. Um, it, was, uh, it did transfer to the West End, but it, it's always a tragedy that, uh, f that we, they're not caught on film, these, um, these tr tremendous productions. Oh, yes, here is, here is Contabines. And so, actually, they've caught the idea of the hand, the apotropaic hand, that's the technical expression, the hand that is held up to avert harm, to avert danger. Um, but they haven't put an eye on it. Now I'm now going to, it's, an, it's another leap. But if you remember, I was saying that uh, literature can be inaugural, inaugural and constitutive of reality, which is not a fashionable way of thinking about literature at all. Um, well, there is an anthropological argument which has totally captivated me, uh, put forward by Alfred Jell. He died fairly young. Um, he was a Cambridge anthropologist, and he did his work in Papua New Guinea and among the Trebian Islanders. 
And he, uh, he hit upon this idea that, of, that art, that by studying the cultures of these people, he saw that they, first of all, that art was absolutely central to their lives. It wasn't a decoration, it wasn't an ornament, it wasn't a luxury. Um, they were deeply, deeply involved in making things and telling their own stories in, in poetry and song. And they, they believed, they believed that, um, uh, that they could be effective through their artifacts, through the things that they made. This was his, so this became his phrase, art as agency. And he had a, a, a subsidiary phrase, which was technology as enchantment. He believed that the technology of the Maori here, and their war canoes, was designed with such intricacy in order to bamboozle evil spirits and cause, make it impossible for enemies to penetrate their defenses. He laid a great emphasis on intricacy and ingenuity. So the technology as enchantment, in this case, were the war canoes, these which you can't, you wouldn't be able to reproduce them from memory. Even if I set it to you as a task, it would be jolly hard to, you'd, I mean, you have to be pretty much an idiot savant to be able to, so the point was it's too complex, too complex to retain. It's unique, it's singular. And that seems to me to have a relationship with the finest calibrations of language in, liter in high literature. And high literature, by high literature, I mean the Iliad. I mean, I don't mean, the, I don't mean contem a contemporary novel. I don't mean James Joyce. I mean this, this very forged traditional uh, material that has come down to us. The, 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 in, the interwovenness and intricacy of such structures, which is also true of the Arabian Nights or of Boccaccio or of Dante, actually matters in the form in, to create, make the literature powerful. The language is being infused with power by the intricacy and ingenuity of its construction. And, and then when, when you get to this, we're, we're in, our present, in our present day, we have an example of this kind of intricacy. And that is the World Wide Web. And the web actually has picked up on a metaphor that's been used um, you know, throughout, really, culture for the, uh, for the idea of catching, entrapping, and immobilizing. Clytemnestra kills Agamemnon in a net. And the whole of the Oresteia is full of the metaphor of nets, knots and nets. And that's how she kills him. She kills him by throwing a fishing net over him. But this fishing net may not be anything but a fishing net of words. It may be she, entra she traps him and destroys him through the intricacy of the language she wraps him in. But of course, it, it's, a met it's in the book, in the story, it's a, it's a real net. And then you get, in ancient Egypt, you get the, the, in, the, uh, in the afterlife, the souls are collected um, and sifted by a net. Cassandra, being a priestess, wore what was known as a ceremonial garment, the agronon, which was a, net, a, a, a tunic of knots. And that was to show, and her speeches in the Oresteia are always discussed in terms of being riddles. They're too knotty to understand. She, her prophecies are incomprehensible, and nobody believes them because they're so so intricately woven. And she wore, because she was a priestess, this was what the ritual garment was. At Delphi, the oracle, the omphalos, the stone, was covered in a fillet, in a, in a network of, of fillets. In the, I mean, I'm just skipping, there's a huge amount of, of material on, on this, this concept that language is a form of net, and, um, and it can do things. So um, the, these are in the British Museum. I saw them not that long ago. And uh, this is known as the net of, King so of net of Solomon. And sometimes it has eyes in it. They're charms. They're charms that you wear in order to protect you from danger. In, I've written a lot about the use of calli calligraphy and charms in Islam, a very important aspect of the Arabian Nights, that the stories um, which are helping to save Shahrazad's life are themselves very intricately knotted um, and have that effect on on us as readers. And you will all know the protective hand from the whole of the Mediterranean. It's not only in Islam, it's all, all through the Mediterranean, Portugal, Italy, of the apotropaic eye 
in the hand that is usually complexly designed to avert, avert danger. Sicily is in the middle of the Mediterranean. It's the largest island in the Mediterranean, um, and it has received confluences of cultures and peoples since it first emerges you know, in Neolithic times. Um, it's got one of the most co complex linguistic and graphic and literary heritages, certainly in Europe. This is an example of, uh, I, I like this because it actually is interwoven in itself, the stone floor of the cathedral in Mondriale, which was built by Arab and Christian craftsmen soon after the Arabs were defeated by the Normans. So one of the forms of art that carries stories in Sicily is puppetry. The, pu the memory of the plots of the puppet shows is unbelievably long. These are stories that contain ancient, this is like Andromeda um, from Greek myth, or this is, if you like, like St. George and the Dragon. The main dominant story is the story of the Crusades, the Moors fighting the um, Christians, and the Crusader Knights, and it's the story of Roland, which I studied when I was at university. The Chanson de Roland is the first French book, uh, first French poem, and so it goes on. So this is a very, very ancient memories. So we decided, um, because Valentina is a friend of mine and works at the University of Palermo, we thought we would start a project of storytelling along these lines, the idea that tradition doesn't have to belong to you, you can make it belong to you, you can make it your home. Greek myth doesn't belong to me, but Madeira is somewhere I can live to learn. Um, so we, we held the first one last year in September. It's Stories in Transit is the name of the project. Um, and th this, was a sort of, this was partly a, a, an academic conference. We had lectures from lawyers and psychiatrists, and as well as um, poets like Alice Oswald, she came, and others who are committed to this idea that uh, culture can be transmitted orally, in different languages, translation, that it, the, motif, the motifs can migrate, and that performance can be a way of communicating um, these narratives that have a kind of deep connection to experience whenever they were written or wherever they were written. So we had, um, we held uh, one day in the Puppet Museum, this is, and we had Ben Haggerty, who's a professional storyteller, uh, with us on that occasion. Uh, uh, the, the idea is actually not to tell them stories, it's for them to tell us stories, uh, to, to elicit, to, to, allow, to allow, allow communication to develop along these lines. So, that, the, so we broke off into little groups, uh, working with different forms of techniques, uh, depending on the, on the uh, you know, what, what kind, I mean, the musicians obviously worked with music, the actors worked with gesture, and so forth. And it was actually, it was fairly successful, this first one, last September. Um, we didn't really inquire very much as to who came. It was open. People could come if they wanted. They're, they're all 18 and under, and they've all come across the sea. Then, um, so then we just went back in May, and this was much more ambitious. Though there weren't so many of us going, actually, but it was much more ambitious because we made contact. We, the first day we went to the... Um, uh, hostel where they live, and there 170 of them are living there. So we probably made contact with over 100 refugees in one way or another, but there was a, probably a core of a, possibly 40 who, who, who came and worked with us. Yusuf Latif Yarala told the story of the Epic of Gilgamesh, and we decided to use Gilgamesh as the most ancient story in the world. And it was actually very striking how there was absolutely no problem of communication at all. I mean, the, the story just was totally comprehensible. I mean, it, it didn't matter that it was so ancient or was written in Babylon. I mean, just it, it, the motifs of it are so strong. The friendship between the two men, the killing of the monster, Humbaba, all these things, you know, were just the desecration of the sacred grove. They were instantly, instantly understood, instantly able to, to be interpreted. So that was, he just gave them the skeleton. And then we started um, working in different groups again. I mean, we had no idea what would happen, but um, they came back, and so we, um, and we again began all together, but then we just split up into groups and um, started working on different aspects, different scenes, different methods of interpreting the scenes. And, and then the puppeteer showed, uh, performed one of the plays, 
And then they showed, them, they showed the refugees how to handle the puppets, which each weigh 12 kilos, so they're pretty heavy. And they really, quite a number of them got very kind of, they were very keen to try, try and do it. And they got, they got very, very involved. So the third day, we worked in the morning on our scenes, and then we tried to put together a, a run-through, and it was pretty astonishing, actually. What happens in the poem is that uh, the king, Gilgamesh, runs riot and, and is uh, abusing all his citizens. And the gods make Enkidu to kind of tame him, who's a wild man. And when Enkidu appears, Gilgamesh is very jealous of this uh, sort of beautiful wild man that's appeared, and they fight. But then after they've fought, they're reconciled, and they become friends. And then Gilgamesh takes the wild man, Enkidu, to show him his city, Uruk. And this is the scene where they are interpreting. They, they were asked, you know, what, 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 what is a city? What, what would you imagine in a city? And they each created a kind of sound and words for what they imagined. It was really very effective. This was the best scene. I mean, it was obviously very ramshackle and very rough and ready, but it was pretty amazing, <laughs> nevertheless, in three days. Those of you who know the poem will know that the, the two heroes set off for the cedar forest, and they desecrate the cedar forest, and then they kill its guardian, who has been appointed by the gods, and they murder him, so Humbaba. And the gods are very, very angry, and as a result, Enkidu begins to sicken and dies. And one of the young men said to me, Enkidu has tried to stop Gilgamesh killing the monster Humbaba, saying, you mustn't do this, it's wrong, and also stops, tries to stop him cutting down the forest. And one of these young men, Mustafa, came up to me and said, I'm very worried by this. I don't think it's at all fair because Gilgamesh was the one who instigated the whole uh, attack on the guardian of the forest and he should have died. It's wrong that he didn't die. So um, I suggested that when that scene happened with the puppets, that he should get up from the audience and make an objection along those lines and that that should then be part of the play. And that actually worked extraordinarily well because they had had a debate earlier about justice and equality, and, and it worked terribly well to have them sparring, so that it was a sort of Brechtian moment when they stepped out of the puppet play and started arguing about whether it was just or not for Enkidu to die. And uh, so we're going to go back, um, probably in November, and continue work. But one of the things that is rather sad about this, these communities, this, this particular community of fate, is that uh, fate may take them elsewhere because they're all turning 18. And when they turn 18, they get treated as adults, and they'll probably be moved and put in a detention center. So while their papers take years and years and years to be processed. So that's, um, it's not sort of certain that we will find the same people, young men there, when we go in November. Thank you.